0: Wake up, Casper! Time Time to scare scare people!
1: people. You're listening to That's Pretty Dark.
2: The podcast where we talk about all of the entertainment that scared us as children
1: and still haunts us as adults. So grab your flashlight and join us. As we take a frightfully nostalgic look over our shoulders
2: and under our beds and in our closets and together we'll realize, well, that's pretty dark." pretty dark.
1: Well, I had such a blast watching this movie. This was my first
2: mm-hmm.
1: Halloween like October movie night mm-hmm. kind of vibe. This is the first one I did this season. It's a
2: good one to start with, honestly. I had such a fun time. And now our listeners get it for their Halloween times. It's just Yeah, they absolutely it's do. It's really spreading the joy this Halloween season.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the spooky joy. I just forgot how fun it was. Like the watching a lot of this stuff as an adult is so Different. It's such a different experience from when you're a kid. It is
2: very different. Like, there was
1: way more language than I expected. Same. A lot of the humor was like,
2: hmm. <laughs> I was like, oh, this might be why I never had this in my house. Like <laughs> yeah. any of this I saw was on TV or like elsewhere. You know, this yes. was never on my shelf at my my home childhood. Home. It makes
1: me think that I just only watched this on thirteen nights of Halloween or whatever.
2: Because who knows what was edited out for for TV purposes? Kind of
1: makes me yeah. love it more, but. I was laughing my head off at that priest, the one of the first people who shows yeah, up the, to Yeah, the really get,
2: early scenes.
1: Yeah. I know we're not talking about the movie yet. We but
2: will. We'll get there.
1: That's next time. That's part two.
2: But my God, it
1: made me think of Alex Crow, and I couldn't stop oh. laughing because he's like, <laughs> like, so you have experience. He's like, oh, yeah, I got an experience. I've talked to the people who've done it. I've seen videos- <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, it's it it a no, it's a no problem.
2: I'm a pro. Piece of cake. It's no problem. Piece of crumb cake. We've just, yeah, had too many references to priests who claim to know what they're doing, or really any expert, quote unquote, that claims to know what they're doing. And, uh, they don't. All
1: well, these quacks. <laughs>
2: quacks, exactly. We
1: know all about that. Mm-hmm. Here on That's Pretty Dark.
2: Yeah, That's Pretty Dark, where my name is Kalen.
1: And <laughs> <laughs> my name is Christian, too, here on this show. <laughs> and also in my normal life,
2: my average and
1: daily existence. Today...
2: We are coming at you guys with part one of a part two series around the 1995 gem of a film, if you haven't figured it out already, Casper.
1: (laughs) Casper, the freaking friendliest ghost around.
2: (laughs) That's right. I love him. This is our third That's Pretty Dark October. It is. So it felt like a very Casper Halloween, if you know what I mean. It just, (laughs) hopefully it does to you too. I know what you mean. We just felt like we had to round out the Halloween season with a really heavy hitter. Although we know that the Halloween season never really ends around these parts. Never. we keep it going all year long. All year long. We're pretty dark all year round. And loving it. But we know that you guys have your own seasonal spooky stuff to get to. Hopefully we're included in the lineup. But we will dive right into Casper and the history behind this character right now.
1: I'm so excited because I have always loved Casper. It was a big part of my childhood, but I don't really know that much about the history. I just know I didn't have like, known about the old cartoon comic strips, etc. I've
2: always been curious, but I never knew.
1: I am pumped to learn.
2: I've never known the timeline. I'm very. I was very excited to dive into that, like mm-hmm. the history, really, of Casper because it's right, so rich yeah. compared to. A lot of things that we talk about that were created in the 90s. Casper goes Mm -hmm. way back. (laughs) Oh, yeah. But first. Tell us about it. Just to get us in the mood, I'm going to hit you guys with a summary of the movie. And this one is straight from IMDb because I didn't do any more notes than were absolutely necessary in my (laughs) current state.
1: (laughs) In the current state.
2: Furious that her late father only willed her his gloomy looking mansion rather than his millions, Kerrigan Crittenden is ready to burn it to the ground when she discovers a map to a treasure hidden inside. But when she enters it to seek her claim, she's frightened away by a wicked wave of ghosts. Wicked wave. Determined to get her hands on the hidden fortune, she hires afterlife therapist, Dr. <laughs> James Harvey. Personally, I would like to be an afterlife therapist. That sounds really fun. It sounds fun. <laughs> to exorcise the ghost from the mansion. James and his daughter, Kat, move in and soon Kat meets Casper, the ghost of a young boy who's the friendliest ghost you know I wish I knew But him. not so friendly are Casper's uncles Stretch, Fatso and Stinky <laughs> determined to drive all fleshies away yeah. Ultimately, it's up to James and Cat to help the ghost cross over to the other side. It's
1: <laughs> a hell of a summary. <laughs> I
2: know there's a lot that happens in this movie. <laughs> That's true. It is. There are layers. Far on more layers complex on than I remembered. Stacks, for on sure. stacks on stacks on stacks. There's just there's a lot going on.
1: There's a lot going on, but in such a short amount of time, I was so surprised. They that do it was cram really it in. Com-
2: it's very compact. Yeah.
1: In my for sure. in my memory from my childhood, they were moving in. As the new family, and they lived there for quite a while Mm -hmm. before any of this happened against their wills. Only now as an adult do I learn they were hired, they moved in, and very intentionally are messing with these ghosts.
2: Yes, it was the whole point. But I mean, I was very young. (laughs) Casper, our 90s kid Casper anyway, Mm -hmm. was released theatrically on May 26, 1995 by Universal Pictures. The film received mixed reviews from critics who praised its faithfulness to the source material, specifically Casper's portrayal as a character, which yeah. we'll definitely be talking about today, yes. uh, the visual effects, musical score, and the performances of the actors. Yeah, I'll say. But they criticized the dark story and campy humor. Huh. The film earned $287.9 million on a $55 million budget, oh. which is pretty damn good. Pretty
1: bonkers. Better yeah.
2: than I thought. Those
1: the most things we cover.
2: Um, I was impressed to read that. But like we were saying before, Casper had already racked up over 50 years of content by the time our film rolled around, and he has still been inspiring content in the 28 years since this film, meaning that Casper as an entity is nearly 80 years old altogether. (laughs) And I think, personally, that it's about time we pay tribute to this Hall of Fame-level spooky kid mascot and capturer of imaginations for almost a century. Casper, the friendly ghost.
1: Yeah, God, I love to think of him <laughs> like that. That reminds me of just how, like, when Cartoon Network got started, they were relying on all these old cartoons to, you know, build out the network.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, so they could meet the tried adults, and
2: true, the, the old, familiar. you know, parents and
1: their kids at the same time. Yes. So maybe that's part of why Casper did so well. There
2: was a legacy to follow. because
1: they were hitting the nostalgia of the parents and building out the '90s uh zeitgeist mm-hmm. you know as we came to know it
2: the f- it's, it's very cool because it's a merging of yes exactly that character the history that a lot of the parents in the 90s had grown up on mm-hmm. and then it was just coated in like a layer of 90s paint basically because it feels <laughs> yeah, very '90s nice. sheen it had a 90s sheen to it
1: it's funny because uh, like unlike other characters who like donald duck's 50th birthday party or like so and so is 70 years old it works for a ghost Mm-hmm. Because you can be dead and be a ghost for 80 years
2: you can. you sure can. it,
1: it works better in my my uh, <laughs> the
2: laws of physics interpretation are more, of reality more appeased by Casper <laughs>
1: <laughs> The laws of Christian are more appeased
2: fair enough. So I think we should begin at the very beginning the genesis of Casper, shall we?
1: No better place to start. <laughs>
2: Luckily, an author by the name of J.A. Hernandez compiled a handy little history lesson on his website. So between that and Wikipedia, I think I'm covering most all of our bases here and I'll be paraphrasing and intertwining both of these. So just bear with me. Born with. The story starts, as many do, within the minds of two creatives. Casper made his first animated appearance in 1945, but he was initially formed as an idea for a children's book. Okay. In the late 1930s, author Seymour Wright created the character, and cartoon animator Joe Oriolo illustrated it. But then World War II broke out, and Seymour Wright went off to serve time in World War II, where Mm. he was stationed on the West Coast. Man. Later, after D-Day, he served in Europe, and while he was away at war and before the children's book was released— Joe Oriolo sold off the rights to Paramount Pictures' Famous Studios Animation Division huh. for a whopping $175. <laughs>
1: that was at least a couple grand.
2: Yeah, adjusting for inflation, that's about like $3,600 in today's money. Okay. So, okay. So, you know, not nothing, but when you look at where Casper's gone... But he
1: did this without the other person's consent.
2: Yeah, while he was gone at war. So, kind of crazy. Jeez. And this one-time payment was all that he received... So he missed out on, you know, all of the revenue from the films, mm-hmm. comic books, and merchandise. Oh yeah.
1: After that, all royalties.
2: Can you imagine being Seymour Wright?
1: No. Like
2: away at war, and then that's just gone, and then.
1: <laughs> so, well, oh man, the unfaithfulness of the people back home. Terrible. All these good men, our boys are off fighting, and everybody back home is just like, "I'm marrying someone else." I know. I'm. It's I kind of like that, isn't it? <laughs> I sold our. <laughs> Baby, (laughs) too. I sold our our baby. baby. It's been sold.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Sold it for almost nothing. Right. I wonder why. Yeah, I think just, I mean, everybody needed money in those times. I mean, yeah. Desperate act, probably, but I will say that the two men continued to work on Casper for a time, hmm. and they allowed Seymour Wright to write gags for animated shorts, and they allowed Joe Oriolo to provide illustrations okay. before some others, such as Warren Kramer, took over.
1: I wonder if that was sort of an understood, like, we're creating this to, like, make, something of it. So if you get the mm-hmm. opportunity to work with somebody, Very
2: well may, go may ahead and, like and pitch
1: it or sell it and mm-hmm. then we'll do whatever we have to do. Maybe and it yeah, was like an agreement.
2: I'm hoping it was more because like if that, they kept working know.
1: together, I, I can't imagine it was like a
2: bitter thing. Yeah. It just seems sad to me.
1: <laughs> it is sad,
2: but yeah, sad. You're, you're probably right about that. The story then restarts somewhat with St. John Publications, and it's unclear to me how they acquired the intellectual property, but this was where Casper was first published in comics in August 1949. Oh, nice. And it ran for five issues until September 1951. And in 1952... Alfred Harvey began producing Casper comic books, which is the part of the story that becomes a little bit more clear. Okay. I also have to wonder if this isn't where the Harvey family name comes from in the film.
1: Oh, I didn't even think about that. Might be why. (laughs) That's gotta be it.
2: Harvey Comics is an American comic book publisher, and it was founded in 1941. And in 1942, it began its iconic shift to primarily licensed characters uh, when it took over as the radio hero Green Hornets publisher. Okay. And other licensed characters included Joe Palooka, Blondie, Dick Tracy, and Mm. other newspaper strip characters. Interesting. But aside from Richie Rich, who was a Harvey Comics original, Harvey Comics worked with Paramount Pictures, Famous Studios... Uh, a Frankenstein group of their own with staff and properties from Max and David Fleischer, yeah. who had originally adapted Popeye right. from the strip to the screen with moderate success, to license and bring many of their characters to life, including Casper the Friendly Ghost, Little Audrey, and Baby Huey.
1: That's amazing. Wow.
2: So, a lot of these characters just join forces within Harvey Tunes. And then after a major purchase from Famous in the 50s, Famous cartoons were repackaged and distributed to television as Harvey Tunes. Oh. And Harvey continued production on new comics and a handful of new cartoons produced for television. Oh. Casper the Friendly Ghost, who had been Famous's most popular original character, now became Harvey's top draw. The
1: most famous famous.
2: <laughs> the most famous from Famous became the most famous from Harvey. <laughs> And characters associated with Casper, such as Spooky, the tough little ghost, Hmm. the ghostly trio, Casper's uncles, uh, Casper's horse, Nightmare, Hot Stuff, the little devil, and Wendy, the good little witch, and all of her family and friends, were then added to the Harvey line.
1: Okay, I feel like I knew about Wendy. So these were all. Not part of the story originally. They all just became part of the Casper universe.
2: They were part of the Casper universe, yes. They already were And any spinoffs that came from that, they were all originally Casper characters. Wow. Those were. That's cool. So, like, some of them very recognizable in their own, you know, on their own.
1: I may have missed this. Did the book ever become something, or did they sell the idea before the book was ever published?
2: I think they sold it before they published a book. Okay. I don't think that the book ever came to be. If it did, somebody, please, correct me. Listener, Darkling, fix it. (laughs) Oh, I mean- so while Harvey Tunes was trying to diversify the comics it was publishing with brief forays in the 1950s and 60s into superhero, suspense, horror, hmm. western, and other forms, comics such as Harvey Thriller and Thrill Adventure, oh. children's comics were the bulk of the output of Harvey Comics. That's cool. So they, they were trying to, you know, branch out beyond just Casper and beyond just these licensed characters that they had purchased and, and acquired from other places, and they were trying their hand at different genres, um, but none of them really, really stuck the way that Casper did. Wow. Harvey Comics was active in the animation game from 1943 until 1967, but sadly, Harvey Comics went defunct in 2002, and Harvey Films now owns these characters, and Harvey Films is owned by DreamWorks Classics, Hmm. which is owned by DreamWorks Animation, which is owned (laughs) by NBC Universal, which is owned by Comcast. (laughs) So these are just hungry, hungry hippo media conglomerates.
1: It's like a Russian nesting doll.
2: (laughs) Yes. And overall, now, I guess that means that NBC Universal is Casper's rightful owner. I don't know if rightful is exactly the word I should use.
1: And it makes sense, too, with their history of horror and monsters and dark storylines.
2: Exactly. You
1: know, the macabre in general.
2: The character of Casper was featured in 55 theatrical cartoons up until 1959, wow. including the original three from Harvey Tunes. These included Casper's first animated cartoon Titled The Friendly Ghost from 1945 And another titled There's Good Booze Tonight From 1948 B-O-O-S <laughs> <laughs> Yes. These provide some insight into the character Just after Casper becomes a ghost uh-huh. So I thought it might be fun to dive into some of these a little bit deeper Please. I watched them both And as you might imagine, listener They are certified Pretty Dark Where'd you watch them? uh i don't even recall honestly i had to dig for them I, maybe one of them was on youtube
1: oh you just were like googling for it
2: because
1: mm-hmm. yeah. i want to watch these
2: yeah listener you can probably find them online with a little bit of searching i
1: told myself so, i was gonna find them and watch them i
2: do recommend it is a an interesting addition to your spooky season lineup if you're so inclined nice and if you plan to watch them spoiler alert i will be sharing the plot of these here so if you plan to watch them watch them then come back and enjoy with us In The Friendly Ghost, the opening narration, which I quite liked, begins with, There are some people who believe in ghosts, and there are some people
0: who don't. If you're the believe-in-ghosts kind, then this story is about one. And if you're the don't-believe-in-ghosts kind, well, just for fun, this story is about one anyway. His name was Casper, and he was surely the most unusual ghost there ever was. Or wasn't, depending on how you feel about it.
2: Instead of seeking to frighten people with the other ghosts dwelling in this mansion, the narrator explains that Casper would rather make friends. And after a really nice sequence where the other ghosts scream and spook nearby homes, causing a swath of city to light up one window at a time, mm. Casper pets and kisses the mansion's sleeping cat, Aww. tosses his little sack over his non-existent shoulder, and <laughs> sets out to leave home on a search for new environments where he might forget he's a ghost, make friends, and see the world. I love that so much. He terrifies a rooster and a mole who needed to put on his spectacles to see the specter in front of him, which I thought was funny, and it reminded me again of, uh, Once Upon a Forest, (laughs) we were talking about that.
0: Yeah,
2: He also spooks a Tom and Jerry-esque set of cat and mouse and a gaggle of hens who are clucking and knitting away. All of this unintentional fright depresses Casper, and he decides he wants to give up. Mm. And, uh... I guess I should throw out a trigger warning if the suicide of a ghost needs a trigger, which (laughs) it very well may, because he lays down on the train tracks as a very vicious-looking train barrels toward and then passes through him. Of course. And when this doesn't work, he meets two children named Bonnie and Johnny, who become his friends. Hello. (laughs) Hello. My name is Bonnie. My name is Johnny. What's your... (laughs) My name is... Casper, do you want to play with us? The children's mother, apparently widowed and impoverished, at first is frightened of Casper, but later welcomes him into the family after he unintentionally frightens off a greedy landlord who, unwilling to own a haunted house, a ghost. tears up the mortgage and gives her the house outright.
1: <laughs> oh man, I love cartoon logic. Yeah, me
2: too. <laughs> Similarly, in There's Good Booze Tonight, Casper, uninterested in one again, once again emulating warplanes, dive-bombing, and booing the townsfolk with his ghost neighbors from the graveyard, wow. laments his loneliness and seeks to find a friend. All of the animals he greets, uh, it was a cow family this time, are terrified of him, and he sits down on the log, sobbing with a chilling undertone of strings, until one sweet, gender ambiguous fox cries (laughs) their own tears feeling sorry for casper and snuggles up to him sweet fox you know very very sweet very sweet fox this one was rough to watch uh, because this can't last and while they're playing hide and seek the fox that casper has affectionately named ferdy is sought out by bloodhounds hunted and ultimately shot (laughs) oh my god (laughs) oh my god (laughs) oh (laughs) Ferdy!
0: I have read in my whole life. <laughs>
2: and Why? Part, like as I watched this, of course it's, it's reminding me of like Fox and the Hound. Uh, of course, uh, the Hungry Hounds. Are you afraid of the dark? Mon like
1: Petit Rouge.
2: And petite I really rouge. feel like all of these stories were made by grown-ups who grew up empathizing with the hunted animals that they either saw personally or they saw depicted in westerns and things like that these poor poor animals Mm -hmm. somewhere in the minds of these folks was some type of growing empathy because then it was worked into pretty much every
1: well piece of media
2: that we saw when we were children i mean
1: they're older and hunting used to be a much bigger part of everyone's existence
2: so casper buries ferdy next to his own grave and once again breaks into forceful sobs until ghost Ferdy rises from the grave and they embrace.
1: <laughs> I don't know if I want to watch these anymore.
2: It's tough, yeah. It was uh, harder than I thought it would be. That's what she said.
1: <laughs> and so,
0: Casper and Ferdy lived happily ever after.
2: The third Harvey tune, "A Haunting We Will Go," is much the same, though not quite as dark. When yet again Casper issues the traditional ghost profession in favor of making friends, and has a duck hatchling imprint on it. Ah! The court character is still sad, misunderstood, and seemingly abandoned in many moments but friendly. And with these serving as some of the earliest blueprints for the on-screen character, it's really no wonder he landed on our show.
1: Yeah. I'm not surprised at all. I feel like that last one sounds really familiar with the duckling and Mm
2: -hmm. going a It was the the most recent. Not that any of them were recent. They were all in the 40s and 50s, but it may have been hanging around for a while.
1: That opening narration of the first one makes me feel like that would have come from some of the original writing, Mm -hmm. like maybe from the book or maybe from like a a comic or something. The
2: tone that they they had hoped to create.
1: It sounds like an introduction to the universe Mm -hmm. that they just would have repurposed.
2: It does, you're right. Later. Harvey began broadcasting the post September 1950 theatrical famous shorts on a TV show sponsored by Mattel Toys titled mm-hmm. Maddie's Fun Day Funnies on ABC in 1959. Wow. All in all, Casper has starred in five television shows, which are Maddie's Fun Day Funnies, 1959 to 1961, hmm. The New Casper Cartoon Show, 1963 to 1970, Casper and the Angels, 1979 to 1980 for Hanna-Barbera. Wow The Harvey Tunes show known in the UK as Casper and Friends 1990 to 94, and the spectacular New Adventures of Casper from 1996 to 1998, which was based most closely on the 1995 film with several actors reprising their roles. Um, and Dan Castellaneta, hey Arnold's grandpa playing Dr. Harvey.
1: Wow, I feel like I saw some of those. Where did those air?
2: Uh, the spectacular New Adventures of Casper aired on Fox Kids. okay. That's where I went. have seen it. To And then they did put it out on um, VHS too. Gotcha. And gotcha. last but not least, the last Casper cartoon was Casper's Scare School from 2009 to 2012. Hmm. Okay. As a film franchise, there also exists a total of five Casper films with one, our subject today, releasing theatrically and the rest being released either on television or straight to video.
1: I know of one other.
2: <laughs> Casper Meets Wendy? Yeah. <laughs> yes. And that's my favorite of them. For sure. Hillary Duff. And I'm about to tell you all about those and the confusing nature because they were supposed to be prequels, but they still didn't follow the plot of the 1995 film and it just got really messy.
1: No, oh, it was supposed to be the same universe? Yes. Okay. Okay.
2: So in the late 1990s, this is after today's Casper. The Harvey Entertainment Company and Saban Entertainment produced two direct-to-video films released by 20th Century Fox Home Entertainment with Casper, A Spirited Beginning in 1997 Hmm. and its sequel, Casper Meets Wendy, in 1998, which is, again, my personal childhood favorite of the collection, starring Hilary Duff.
1: Does he always meet these foxy ladies? (laughs)
2: Like I said, both of these films are often regarded as prequels to the 1995 film, but they completely contradict the continuity. For example, Wendy's aunt, a witch named Gert, is not even consistent with the comic character's name. Hmm. and. Gert in Casper Meets Wendy is played by Kathy Moriarty. Oh. Who plays Kerrigan in Casper in 1995. Yeah. <laughs> wow. What a tangled web this is. That
1: is a tangled web.
2: These two films oh, were not well received from a critical standpoint, which supposedly led Universal Studios to cancel plans that they were making for a sequel to the theatrical film. Wow. And I think that's silly because they totally could have redeemed it, you know, if not redeemed those two films. But just They were so out of Left field, they weren't even close to the nineteen ninety five film. Yeah. They could have just started from the ninety five film and made a sequel.
1: Franchises relaunch all the time. I really don't
2: know why. I don't know why they didn't just go with it, but I guess it was just so poorly received that they were afraid that the sequel would get the same treatment and people wouldn't give it a chance. I guess
1: they'll just have to do it now with a grown-up Christina Richard.
2: And it also makes me wonder what might have happened if, like so many other Casper ventures, Harvey Entertainment had let the 97 and 98 films exist in their own little universe and hadn't called them prequels at all. Right, If they had just not tried to associate it with the 95 film then we would mm-hmm. all have been better off, I think.
1: they were just trying to force it.
2: Well, they, yeah, and they wanted to capture that audience, I'm sure, but it ended up costing them the audience.
1: You see what happens when you seek after money, people? When you seek after success and you fame? You just
2: need to do it right. Honor the plot, honor the characters. You need to stay true. And you will have more success. You know
1: what? Stay true to the IP and stay true to yourselves.
2: That's what I think. It's the
1: only way you're going to succeed.
2: <laughs> That's our message today. Yeah, and that's pretty dark. Won't
1: necessarily lead to fame and fortune, but at least you'll feel good about yourself. It would
2: have at least led to a better Casper movie. <laughs> <laughs> or just a sequel of one that was really good in the first place.
1: It's a win-win-win.
2: In the early 2000s, Harvey Entertainment returned once more along with Mainframe Entertainment with a film released by Universal Pictures Home Entertainment entitled Casper's Haunted Christmas in 2000. I want to watch that. Unlike the three previous films, which were live action, this one was completely computer animated. Oh, okay. This was also the last Casper film to be involved with Universal. Mm. In the mid-2000s, a second computer animated film was made for television, produced by Moonscoop and released by Classic Media. This was Casper's Scare School in 2006. Hmm. And this film eventually had its own spin-off series with the same name that aired on Cartoon Network, released in 2009. Oh. That's where that animated series originated.
1: Gotcha. Okay.
2: Of course, we also know that Casper inspired collections of merchandise as well as fondly remembered computer games and console yes. video games for the SNES, the Sega Saturn, PlayStation Game Boy, and Game Boy Color.
1: Man, I never had any of these.
2: I had the Casper game for Game Boy Color. And
1: it, what was it? Because I never had them.
2: I don't remember all the whole plot or what it was called, but I 100% played it. On my did Game you just float
1: around as Casper? Yeah, like, you pl- it- I
2: think you played as Casper. Oh my
1: God, that sounds so cool.
2: I think you did. Correct me if I'm wrong, listener. Everybody, let us know your memories with these video games because they were so popular. Like the games were almost more popular. I, I would say the games were definitely more popular than the prequels. They
1: need to make new games for all this stuff I know. so I can play them now.
2: Numerous Casper cartoons were also released on home video by Universal Studios, who- as of today, after several more downline acquisitions, like we said, manage all of the rights to the character and other related characters. Wow. This IP splintered off in so many different directions from the original Famous Studios deal. But as we've said, it's Universal's connection to Casper that carries us into the next phase of our conversation. Finally, the production of the 1995 live action film.
1: Hell yeah. <laughs> Maybe you can tell me this. I had one piece of Casper merchandise. As a kid, because I remember the ghostly trio being a huge part mm-hmm. of my childhood, like yes. Stretch, Fatso, and Stinky. Me too. But I don't know what I owned. That was themed after those characters.
2: There was a ton of merchandise that came out around that time, but I don't know. I never had any. I wanted to because I loved Casper Meets Wendy and I knew those characters. Yeah. I knew those characters more from Casper Meets Wendy than from Casper, honestly, because I liked Hillary Duff. So that's the one we had. Looking
1: back, I feel like I did too, because that was on TV a lot, mm-hmm. especially during October times. It really was. This Casper was too. I definitely but. saw
2: Casper Meets Wendy on TV more. Yeah. I thought it was really unfair that Hilary Duff got to dance with Casper in a gazebo <laughs> and I wanted to dance with Casper in a gazebo.
1: <laughs> what year did that come out?
2: 98.
1: I think those were some of my earliest romantic feelings
2: me with, too for Hilary
1: Duff <gasps> in that movie. Me
2: too. Oh my gosh. But you,
1: you for Casper though.
2: Yes. Yes. And you for, for Hilary. I mean, it would have
1: been fine if it was Hilary Duff, but like, <laughs> I think I was like- I mean,
2: I love Hilary Duff. Don't get me wrong. Because I would have been seven. Either is fine, but-
1: Seven or eight. When I, exactly. when I saw that Same. and I was like feeling things.
2: I 100% remember that being some of my most, and, and we're going to talk about that with the 1995 one as well. This was a lot of people's first romantic feelings.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Seeing him turn into that guy. I know he's famous. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, for, for this really, well, we'll, we'll we're going to gonna get there. We're definitely we'll going to get there next time. But yeah, that's so funny that me and you both loved the romance of Casper meets Wendy (laughs) because i've like i've wanted to bring that movie up to you before but i've been like that was just such a silly like i know i even when i watched it i knew it was a sequel i knew it wasn't like and it wasn't even a sequel but i mean i knew it was like a spinoff of the more popular movie yeah so i always knew in my head it was kind of like off brand you know, like I never felt like it I don't fit. think I
1: ever really thought about it like that. I just, I just accepted it for what it was. I, I knew it and was I liked not her.
2: what they had intended, but I also knew that Hilary Duff had entered my life and she was there to stay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's wonderful. But yeah, so I was walking back to the couch and I felt like these... Fingers swipe on my neck and shoulder. Well, you like very distinctly. You're, you're
2: bringing this up because we just took a break. We did. and while I was washing my hands in the bathroom, I felt a very distinct little boop poke <laughs> right underneath my left shoulder blade. Just a boop, like right. It
1: wasn't like a boop on the nose. Mm-hmm. It was like
2: it was a- just a little little nudge on my left shoulder blade like like, hey and then you
1: it felt like three fingers yeah
2: that i don't like at all
1: like i was walking around my table at all and something reached out to casper to touch me right
2: casper are you with us like grab
1: me or stop me and all it could do was ghostly just like brush Mm. brush me and um i like stopped and turned around but like the point was you don't react the way you think you
2: will. No, not at all. It's
1: not like Scooby Doo. You don't run and scream and like uh-uh. hide.
2: You're just like
1: You just turn around, there's nothing there, and you just
2: It's because we we can't make sense of it. It just doesn't so make any sense. Our first instinct is not fear, but just confusion.
1: It's like you hear like a like a knock or a creak and you're like, "Oh my god, it's a ghost." Oh no. Mm-hmm. But then something overt happens and you're like, I "Couldn't be." Yeah. Certainly there's an explanation.
2: C- yeah, there you look for the reason. And you're like, well, "But" <laughs>
1: This is the most... I've never been, like, groped by a ghost before. <laughs> it's the first time. Casper? <laughs> hey, Cas.
2: Of of all the times to be talking about a friendly ghost, I sure hope that this one is.
1: The number of times, though, that I wished I could meet Casper.
2: Same. That he
1: would be my friend. Same.
2: I wanted to be Casper's friend. That he would choose me. For sure. And I don't think we're alone in that. I think that there have been decades of, of children that have wanted that. I think so. Because he's just so darn friendly. Who wouldn't want Casper he's as a friend? so darn nice. <laughs> That's some pretty good uh, post-break chatter because this is um, <laughs> this film. Just the idea of moving in and purposefully seeking out ghosts is uh, really fun in this context. Less fun in others, such as something like I don't know, Paranormal Activity or
1: <laughs> no, wow,
2: guys But well, Casper, it's a good time.
1: And if anybody out there has a story about moving into a new place, you know, being real Stephen King about it, you move into a new home and it's haunted or something crazy happens. We want to hear about
2: it. Yeah, we've thought about even sharing, um, you know, some listener stories since, and, and we like to combine the nostalgia and everything like that too, so. We
1: would definitely do a listener stories episode. I
2: think that would be really fun. We'd
1: love to let you guys do the work for a change.
2: Hey, <laughs> be my guest. Be our guest. So, be our are guest. we ready to discuss the production of Casper Please. as a film?
1: Tell me all about it.
2: In the early 90s, with the most recent mainstream on-screen Casper media being over a decade old at that time, Hmm. a deal was made for this infamous live-action feature produced by That's Pretty Dark Regular and Entertainment. Yeah, buddy. Executive producer Steven Spielberg hired Brad Silberling as director, making it Brad's feature directorial debut, as he'd come from a background directing TV series such as Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Doogie Howser, MD, and Brooklyn Bridge, which is where Spielberg first saw his work. That's cool. Casper opened many new doors for Brad, and he went on to direct dozens more projects, including City of Angels and the 2004 Series of Unfortunate Events adaptation. <laughs> oh, yes, God, I love that movie. One of our mutual favorites. But I hate
1: City of Angels. <laughs> hate that movie with a burning
2: passion. The duality of Brad Silberling. But
1: Spielberg is known for that, for giving people like their first
2: giving film. Giving people their breaks.
1: Yeah, their opportunity.
2: And speaking of giving people their big breaks, in their first meeting, Spielberg told Brad Silberling, I was you once. I was in that situation and I needed somebody to have the trust and faith that I could make the leap to start making movies. I saw the show that you did, which was an episode of Brooklyn Bridge, and I could see you were making a movie, but you only had a half hour to make it. And I'd love to help you make a longer one.
1: What a dream.
2: Spielberg wanted to tap Brad as director for an English remake of a French comedy at Warner Brothers, but the project ultimately fell through. Right before Thanksgiving of 1993, Brad was in Hawaii prepping to shoot a new television show, the short-lived The Birds of Paradise, when he got another call from Spielberg. Steven Spielberg led with, Okay, this one's really going to happen, and it's going to go pretty fast. (laughs) When Steven told him that it was Casper, Brad said, Wait, Casper, as in the ghost Casper? (laughs) And Steven said, Yep, it's going to be awesome. It's live action. We finally just cracked the code with Jurassic Park two years ago, so the ghosts will be CG.
0: Oh, wow.
2: Brad said, I thought he was out of his mind and responded, you know what I do? I dated an animator at UCLA, but I don't do animation. But Steven was fantastic and said, no, what you do and what's in your heart is what this movie needs. Hmm. I didn't know anything about the CG stuff until we were making Jurassic Park. You'll be fine. So he wanted a live action director.
1: We've learned that there is often a distinction between directors who do live action and directors who do animation. Mm-hmm. Like even movies like Pagemaster, where there was both. Yes.
2: Sometimes there's a director just for the animation and yeah, just for the live action.
1: His like initial gut reaction was, I don't do animation. What do you mean? Yep. What I don't want to do CG. What why is the Why thing? are you
2: tapping me for this? Right. Basically.
1: And it's like, no, no, no. It's it's still live action. It's a whole different mm-hmm. thing. You, you know, and now it's just understood. Stephen
2: had the vision. He had the vision. He saw what Brad could do and he wanted Brad to bring his talent to this film. That's fun. Exciting for me, the film screenplay was co-written by two women. Oh. First, Lynn Stoner, who has worked extensively in animation and was a member of the famed Groundlings comedy troupe that we've talked about before. That's cool. She also served as the animation reference model for Ariel in The Little Mermaid and for Belle in Beauty and the Beast. No
1: way! The same person!
2: Mm-hmm. Ariel... The character frequently bites her lower lip, and this was supposedly a mannerism of (laughs) stoners that was adapted by the animators. Damn. She was a writer and producer for such 1990s animated shows as Tiny Toon Adventures and Animaniacs. Wow. She was also on the writing staff of the spooktacular New Adventures of Casper. That's cool. And we spoke very recently about her co-writer. Okay. Who was none other than Deanna Oliver. The voice of Toaster wow. in The Brave Little Toaster.
1: More crossovers.
2: And I can't remember if I let you all in on the crossover at the time, so you should just let me have this. <laughs> <laughs> they also gave a posthumous writing credit to Casper's original illustrator, Joseph Oriolo.
0: Oh, wow. All right.
2: In an interview, J.J. Abrams revealed that he himself did an uncredited rewrite at one point, too. Hmm. And in the sci-fi interview, Brad said that he had J.J. locked in his trailer the first two weeks of shooting, just running in and giving me pages and going through them. (laughs) So apparently J.J. Abrams was rewriting some of this on the fly. And as we were saying, there's a big difference between live action and animation and the talent that goes into each of them. But yeah. Steven Spielberg for this film persisted and he knew what he wanted and it was pretty unique because according to Steven Spielberg, Sherry Stoner and Diane Oliver had no background in writing feature films, let alone live action. Hmm. So they originally approached the movie as if it was an animated film. Okay. And when they presented the script to Spielberg, they asked, is it like animation? And he said, it can be. As a matter of fact, I wish more films were like animation. Huh. So he wanted the live action director to direct it like a live action. And he wanted the animation writers to write it like an animation. That's cool. And I think it paid off.
1: Yeah, I like that.
2: The writers really had no limits on their script and they saw only Dr. Harvey and Kat as the live action characters while everybody else around them were portrayed as over-the-top cartoons and used a lot more tune logic throughout the story.
1: I like that because then you don't limit yourself for the story and the possibilities of of what, you know, Mm -hmm. you imagine live action to be. So Mm -hmm. you only have these two main characters grounded in reality and Mm -hmm. everything else is surreality.
2: And I think that that gives you a good like baseline, you know. I like that. That's fun. You know, you know where you need to get to and you know where you're going when you're, you know, going into writing the script. Yeah. And I think That's this cool. was especially the right approach because they had so much of blending the cartoon history in with this more cynical 90s voice.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love 90s cynicism.
2: Oh, yeah. That's what I was raised on. <laughs>
1: Same. All of us.
2: Principal photography for Casper began on January 27th, 1994 and ended on June 8th, 1994. Wow. Uh, Although some of the location footage was filmed in Camden, Maine, Whipstaff Manor was largely a studio set. Sure. And when it comes to the style of the mansion, according to an article by Dhruv Sharma on The file, there is supposedly an actual Whipstaff Manor in the seafront of eastern Canada. No way. So somewhere out there was uh, a mansion that inspired this mansion.
1: That's crazy. I wonder if it looks all Turkish.
2: Yeah, maybe <laughs>
1: like this one does, mm-hmm. with like the spiral towers and such.
2: It does. It definitely does. What is that?
1: What's that really famous, colorful, like Russian, uh, like cathedral? It's all colorful and spiral. I feel and like and stuff. I
2: can see in my head a textbook it's photo, um, but I don't know what it's called. Saint
1: Basil's Cathedral. It's in Moscow. Oh. I just hmm. looked it up.
2: Okay, well there it's we go. It's all
1: colorful, but that's what this house looks like. If the colors were all muted Mm -hmm. and sad.
2: Oh, yeah. Okay. I know what you're saying. See what I mean? Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going to have to. Listener goes, uh, opens Google. Google's St. Basil's
1: Cathedral. St. Basil's Cathedral. (laughs) But yeah, I was just surprised. It doesn't look the way I remember
2: it. Me neither, really. The mansion. But I have a fun fact that also came from this article. It's one of the more famous fun facts from the production of Casper. So you may already know it if you're familiar. How
1: famous and fun is it? But
2: I think it's pretty cool because the set was at least somewhat repurposed and used for the Backstreet Boys, Everybody, Backstreet's Back music video, which premiered in
0: 1997. It ain't my fault. The bus broke down. I'll get it fixed. Y'all just
1: chill here for me. No, honestly, this place is creepy. I'll back, Backstreet. I just thought about that because I was doing research for Thriller, and I was thinking how... Michael Jackson did his Michael Jackson's Ghost Haunted House music video. And I was like, what else am I thinking of? Oh, my God. The Backstreet Boys Haunted House music video. That back scared Street's me, too, back.
2: as a kid. All right. So
1: they used this set.
2: They used this set. That's
1: fun. Actually, I do like that video. That's a cool video.
2: I like the video, too. That's <laughs> wild. You can even see it because the floor is very, like, distinct. That's how you know that it's the set of this. So. Tim
1: Burton's Spiral Tile Dream.
2: That's it. I
1: need to watch that. Again, hey, look that
2: up. Brad Silberling in his interview compares the hectic process of filming Casper to the infamous production of Jaws. Brad said, Stephen made Jaws one night at a time. Yes, there was a script, but they ended up basically improvising every night over dinner. And Carl (laughs) Gottlieb would then capture their improvs and the next day they'd go to work. So in his mind, it's a totally valid way to make a movie.
1: That's fun. That's crazy. It
2: sounded, the tone of this at least, like Brad doesn't think this is a valid way to make a movie. And I can <laughs> attest, and you can attest, that it's really hard to make a movie like this. The
1: only way you can make a movie like that is to have a team of geniuses and a shit ton of money.
2: Or you can do it like we did with no budget and moderate <laughs> intelligence, and it comes out okay. Moderate level.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, we did it.
2: We, we did it. We did it okay. And honestly- I get it like I you want things to be improving you want to be getting feedback in real time and you want to be able to fix what doesn't work and yeah so I, I understand that and it's it's almost more like how they do TV so it's almost like making a movie the way that they make TV right a lot more fluid
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and if
2: you can't make changes and like improve things on the fly like adapt to the actors and take advantage of the other creative minds in the room how good could it really be true at the end of the day. Principal photography was also slightly deferred by the Northridge earthquake in 1994, which could have spelled disaster for the already constructed sets at Universal. Oh. But despite its devastating effects throughout the city, the natural disaster actually improved the crumbling old manor house interior where the vast majority of Casper takes place. Wow. Brad Silberling said... It was kind of awesome because the only thing that happened is the set had gotten more cracked, but they were structurally safe, and so they got started.
1: That's awesome. (laughs) I don't know how you determined that it's structurally sound.
2: I'm sure they had to have it inspected somehow to have all the actors and equipment on set because, of course, they had not just the actors but all the equipment for the CG stuff, but I'm getting to that really soon. Sweet. Other important crew include the director of photography, Dean Cundy, who had plenty of experience shooting uh, visual effects-heavy titles like *Who Framed Roger Rabbit* and *Jurassic Park*. Oh wow! And editor Michael Kahn, who's cut together every Spielberg movie since *Close Encounters of the Third Kind*,
1: <laughs> which was partially filmed near where we live. Sure was. Uh, that's cool. Yeah, those are the people you really want to know what they're doing. You can direct something and not really know how animation works mm-hmm. or CG. But you want those people to really have it all figured out.
2: You really do, and I want those people to do it because I don't. I I can't do math. I can't. Uh, I have. I don't have great spatial awareness. So all of that sounds like magic to me.
1: Yeah, <laughs> like the first time as a DIT, we had a green screen. The DP was like checking with me to make sure that the green levels were accurate. The color was like right.
2: We're like sure, yeah, looks right to me.
1: <laughs> I was like, this is actually my first time doing this. <laughs>
2: Brad Zilberling said that the editor Michael Kahn found the whole experience restorative. He said Schindler's List was such an emotionally taxing movie for them both, right. and he felt like he went into a bit of a depression when the movie was done. So he was constantly like, "Oh, this feels great. I'm so happy. This is such an enjoyable film and yeah. enjoyable process." And God, this is I'm a good not time.
1: surprised.
2: <laughs> yeah, if you d- if you're editing Schindler's List for you know 12 hours a day, that movie, I'm sure Casper feels like a breath of fresh air.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I would think so.
2: Continuing to quote from the sci-fi article, the ghostly digital effects were overseen by ILM's Scott Farrar, on-set supervisor, and Dennis Marin whom Brad Silverling described as the godfather of the movie from ILM's perspective. All right. <laughs> so he had it figured out. He was one of those people that had it figured out. Love that. Uh, Brad also sought out lessons on the fundamentals of animation from Amblimation alum. Phil Nibbelink,
1: yeah, okay. director
2: of An American Tale, and we're back. Remember him? Uh-huh, we talked I about do. him a lot because I also struggled to say his name. <laughs> oh, yeah, I
1: remember the name. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Brad said, essentially, this was a movie that I directed twice, once for 96 days on set and then the rest for the next year and change to get all the animation done.
0: Oh, yeah. Wow. Brad
2: explained, when it became clear that the visual effects allotment would invariably go over budget during the storyboarding stage, Spielberg assured the young director. He said to me, You have a gift for staging and you know how to work with the camera. Do nothing differently. The only challenge is you know where the ghosts are going to be and you're going to have to really be able to communicate that to everybody else, Mm -hmm. especially the actors. Right. On day 65 of the arduous shoot, Steven Spielberg stopped by the set to check on Brad and give him a little pick me up in the form of a joyride around the Universal lot. (laughs) Brad said that he'd had the first before market GPS, and so they were just following the GPS. Uh, They drove by the Psycho House and they went all around the Universal lot. Wow. Brad said that Steven was wise and he was trying to distract him and gave him a little bit of, like, you know, good vibes. Sure. Brad said, I couldn't have had a greater cheerleader there to go through a totally unknown process, but a really glorious one by the end.
1: What a nice time.
2: He admits that the learning curve turned out to be vertical, and it wasn't a slant. It was just straight up. It was the same trial by fire that Steven Spielberg had experienced on Jurassic Park two years before, so he Mm -hmm. was in a very unique position to understand where Brad was coming from.
1: I was going to say that Spielberg's way, just straight up, like a rocket.
2: Brad said, The kitchen sequence in Jurassic is one of the most extraordinary, suspenseful things ever. He didn't even know if the dinosaurs were going to work, but again, it's the ballet that he shot— Hoping and anticipating that these creatures would make their way in the way he was hoping. Yeah. And that's what he was telling Brad during this day off.
0: Yeah. Wow. Telling
2: them, make them fit into your movie. Don't go the other way around.
0: Mm, okay.
2: Essentially saying, like, don't make the movie around them. Make the ghosts fit into your film. And I can fully see that in the final product. For sure. Um, It took immense talent on both Brad's part and the parts of the CG animators because it fits. You know, it, it's mm-hmm. so believable. And for it to have been like one of the first of its kind with CG mixed with live action animation, it still holds up today. It
1: holds up, dude. I was so impressed by
2: it. It is so pleasant to watch, like just all of the visuals. Yeah. And you, it's it's so seamless that it's, it's even more impressive that this was just like the cutting edge, the earliest uh, examples that we have of this type of mixed media.
1: And of course, it was Spielberg involved with everything, overseeing it.
2: Christina Ritchie spoke briefly about having to act with the maquettes and tennis ball creations in an interview <laughs> for E! Uh, stating that once she knew her eyeline, she didn't find it especially difficult because they all kind of learned tricks for how to best work around it. Right. And of course, this kind of sounds old hat now to us and, and a lot of you listening probably because we see so many films like this. But back then, it was groundbreaking.
1: Brand new stuff. Yeah. Eyeline's really hard actually in film. Like sometimes you have to cheat eyelines. For real yes, actors.
2: Eyelines are difficult. Looking
1: at each other. Like sometimes if you, if you look at actors and they look like they're not looking at each other, it's because they got the eyeline wrong.
2: Mm-hmm. It's a very simple, subtle thing, but it's so noticeable on screen when it's wrong. But
1: if it's that hard with real people, imagine how hard it is with something that isn't there.
2: I can't, frankly, I can't, <laughs> I can't even imagine. And listener, if you're, if you're not super familiar with like the, the filming process, a lot of times the coverage that cameras will get, they need, you know, angles where they can't have all the actors in frame or they can't have all the actors on set. Yeah. So they're getting coverage based on it's it's piece by piece by piece so they don't always have the actor to look at it's it's not as simple as a play where right. you have everybody in one place and the cameras are just circulating around them typically well
1: normally that's where you have a stand in
2: yes that's when you would have a stand in yeah have so you ever wondered why that's a job on a film set <laughs> yeah. it's a very important one they're called second team and speaking of being groundbreaking this film which was released just a couple months before toy story wow. made casper the first CGI lead character in a film. No
1: way. That's awesome.
2: And according to the LA Times, its effects required an equivalent of 19 million floppy disks to create. Oh my God. Despite Jurassic Park having 63 shots of CGI effects under six minutes long, Casper has over 350 shots with the computer animated shots on screen for about 40 minutes of the movie. That's insane. Including the ghosts, the objects, and the wide (laughs) shots of Whipstaff Manor.
1: That's awesome. (laughs)
2: So when you compare the two, it's like... More than
1: Jurassic Park. They definitely
2: figured it out with Jurassic Park. It's very impressive. And that also still holds up.
1: It really does.
2: It was a whole different you know, challenge they were taking on to have 40 minutes of this type of animation. Good lord. And CGI blending. Man. One of the most difficult scenes to accomplish with all of these considerations was the scene in which Casper lifts a dress out of a trunk and drops it over Christina Ricci's head. Right. Okay. That was the one of the most difficult things to accomplish. I could see that. On their end.
1: Because it also involves something CG- going to a real person yes yeah it's like a transitional it's shot. a
2: transition shot but yeah i cannot even begin to understand the math no <laughs> to make work as we always do we need to mention the music in this film yes please the soundtrack was composed by award-winning composer james horner and we talk about him all the time on That's Pretty Dark, because he's an Amblin favorite from An American Tale and The Land Before Time. I love
0: James Horner. The
2: track One Last Wish would go on to accompany Universal Pictures' Logos Through Time Montage as part of their centennial anniversary. And the track Descent into Lazarus was used in a trailer for The Grinch, another film by Universal Pictures that has music made by James Horner.
1: Wow.
2: So they were even repurposing some of these scores and themes because they were so good. I
1: don't usually notice the music in these things, but I especially appreciated Mm. this score. It's great. Beautiful.
2: I always notice the music though. It's beautiful. The soundtrack was originally released on April 29th, 1995, almost five weeks before the film, but was remastered and reissued as a commemorative 25th anniversary edition on August 4th, 2020. Hmm. And I'm going to leave most of the casting details and fun facts about the cast for when we're discussing the plot and all of the deep darkness in part two. Yeah. But I'll leave you all with a few more interesting notes on the legacy of Casper. In a 1995 interview, Kathy Moriarty, who played Kerrigan Crittenden. Yeah. Revealed that she was the only cast member who was a fan of the original Casper cartoons. She said that she still had videotapes of some of the shows. She said some of them are too precious. I didn't like Wendy the Good Witch, but I liked Casper. He was very sweet and very pleasant. But our movie is much more 90s and hip. (laughs) (laughs) And that's definitely a way of saying it. On that note, though, Russell Harvey heir to the Harvey comics legacy thoroughly hated this film and how it forced child unfriendly humor and an overly dark, completely pointless backstory into something so beloved for its innocence. He also expressed disappointments in Steven Spielberg, whom he felt wasted the perfect opportunity for a legitimately heartfelt adaptation. And to that, I say, excuse me, Russell, but have you ever seen those first three Casper? Cartoons ever <laughs> in your life? Heartbreaking. I would assume that you have. They're dark. Are you telling me that some of the dark? <laughs> are you telling me that this was more dark and difficult to watch than those were?
1: Maybe because it was live action.
2: The live action adds a layer of reality, obviously, but like the tone, I would argue, is far darker. Yeah. A couple of those cartoons.
1: I'd say so. As kids who grew up with the darkness of the '90s, we would say that those uh, those earlier bits mm-hmm. much darker.
2: I think that the real kicker for Russell was that this film was the first piece of Casper media that finally constructed a backstory for the character. Right. It's the only time up until this point in his 50-year history that Casper had that the question of his death is actually addressed, despite earlier attempts by Harvey Comics to simply claim that Casper was born a ghost of two ghost parents. (laughs) (laughs)
1: yeah okay so i mean we'll get into all that with part two but i was thinking that it probably had a lot to do with the casper origin of how he became Mm -hmm. a ghost Mm -hmm. which knowing that it was never fully fleshed out i also feel like i don't i don't know how i feel about giving him that human backstory i don't know i'm gonna have to process this now
2: i think they had to I feel like for the audience at the time, I feel like they they had to.
1: It was an opportunity to do that. Mm-hmm. I could say that.
2: And I don't know. Maybe I just feel that way because that's how I know it and because I grew up knowing the backstory. Yeah. But a lot of people didn't and a lot of people didn't like it.
1: <laughs> Let us know what uh, you guys think. I might prefer the other.
2: This is also the only film to have Casper on screen in his human form. Wow. Okay. So that adds, again, another layer of reality and you're imagining that this child, you know, passed away unexpectedly and far too soon. very, very sad. But without that live-action nod to Casper, it would have deprived a lot of 90s kids from their first crushes and uh, (laughs) romantic aspirations with the Can I Keep You scene, which we will talk all about in part two.
1: Yeah, it being live-action, there's just so much potential there for realism. So I could see where their approach to it is, what's the most realistic thing we can do to make this a believable story?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, let's talk about how he died. Yeah. Let's give him a reason to be a ghost, right? I mean,
2: yeah, we we talked about that too. They they needed some elements that grounded it in reality. Yeah. That was part of the magic of this you know, yeah. milkshake that <laughs> Steven Spielberg was mixing up. Yeah,
1: I think you could still have him be temporarily human and everything without it. You could even have the whole story without... Knowing exactly how he died, mm-hmm. but I could see where they the implication
2: were just, could be there, and you don't have to explain it. I they guess. could have
1: discovered the you know discovered the whole laboratory, mm-hmm. right? It could have been a whole, whole like, ooh, we're all learning this together. But I I get why they did it. You you seize upon the opportunity. The '90s was about bringing a lot of things into sharp focus mm-hmm. of. Uh, harsh realities
2: and even casper did not escape that fate
1: (laughs) yeah it's why we all are the way that we are
2: in very deed so with that i am going to leave off and leave you wanting for details of all the pretty darkness of the plot of the film and the film's reception and any more hair-raising details that christian and i can dig up for our halloween extravaganza of (laughs) casper part two (laughs) yeah
1: I can't believe we are three quarters the way through.
2: It comes and it goes so quickly, doesn't it?
1: Every single year.
2: You said that last time. <laughs> it
1: always goes by way too fast. I feel like I missed October. I missed Halloween. As
2: much as I want to hang on to it, I think it's always going to feel like I missed it.
1: I think every time. Because
2: I'm just trying so hard to hang on.
1: Youth, life, October, Halloween. <laughs> Woo, and if that's not the Halloween spirit, I don't know what it is. Hear, hear. Well, thanks for spending your October with us. We hope that we are making it worth your time. We hope that you're enjoying yourselves and getting your spook on. Get you know that
2: spook on Get that Get
1: freaky, it on. freaky, freaky '90s Halloween party vibe, like the end of this movie.
2: If you're enjoying this October with us, or you enjoy our content in general, it's a great time. It's just a wonderful time of year, isn't it? To be giving the most giving to others, spookiest and if you want to give to us, of
1: the year.
2: you can join us on our Patreon at patreon.com slash tpd podcast
1: it's only five bucks a month
2: we do have a couple new patrons to thank we sure do Uh, thank you chris c and theo for your contributions we really appreciate you thanks for everything you guys are great thank you both
1: and i hope you're enjoying the ghost story series that i'm doing uh and having as much fun with it as i am because it's been a blast
2: you can follow us on our socials at That's Pretty Dark on TikTok, at That's Pretty Dark Podcast on Instagram. Come and share your spooky vibes. Uh, (laughs) We all could use some more spooky vibes in our lives. We need it so much. And as always, we're grateful that you're listening and we are so honored to be spending this, in our opinion, best time of the year with you all up in your ears.
1: And we know that we're almost done with our spooktacular October. But don't forget that we have two other Octobers of content Mm -hmm. to also enjoy and listen to. That's true.
2: If you're new to the podcast, that's a very good point. If um, you're looking for spooky season listening.
1: Last year, we did our History of Halloween.
2: We have a whole History of Halloween that Christian did a deep, deep dive on all of the traditions and uh, really fun games and mm-hmm. stories that are behind all the Halloween things that we think of when we think of Halloween That's right. today and did in the 90s of
1: course we got Hocus Pocus and we did uh, Disney's The Tower of Terror and um, Rocket Powers the night before Mischief Night mm-hmm. so all kinds of fun stuff plenty to enjoy.
2: Yep. Dig back in the catalog if you're looking for some more spooky season goodness or even, you know, I love to re-listen to stuff and re-watch things so maybe that's your vibe too. Hmm. We just want to make sure that we're making it the spookiest for sure. season for you.
1: We want you guys to have the best Halloween you can possibly have. We really do. So much it hurts. Yes. Alright. Is that all we have? I think that's it. Wow. Okay. Well join us next week for part two of Casper.
2: It's so rare for us to be able to say next week. Next yeah, week. Yeah. Join us next I know. week.
1: It's <laughs> always next time. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thanks for listening to That's Pretty Dark, written and produced by Christian Baxter Mott and Kaylin Andrews.
2: Our music is composed by Jonathan Simmons, and our art is provided by Paige Garland at Power Girl Illustration.
1: Join the collective nostalgia and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at That's Pretty Dark Podcast.
2: Share your experiences and let us know what shows, films, or villains still haunt you from childhood at that's pretty dark podcast at gmail.com. Remember, you're never really alone.
1: So, until next time. Sweet dreams, everyone. Oh, if you're the believe in ghost stories
0: kind, this is what happened. And if you're the don't believe in ghost stories time, well. This is what happened anyway.